Well, good morning, everybody. I'm going to call you back to your seats. So music is ending. It's like musical chairs. You know, you hear the music stop, find a seat. We we're playing the Beatles because the Beatles stole those lyrics from the book of Ecclesiastes. So, or the birds. Sorry, it said the Beatles. The birds. I got the B right. My bad. The birds stole that song from uh, the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, which we are going to be in for the next 12 weeks. Um, and the uh, title of our series that we'll be going through is When All Has Been Hurt. When All Has Been Hurt. The book is written by King Solomon. Um, he's at the end of the book. We'll see in a moment. Spoiler alert. I'm going to give you kind of the end of the story. I'm going to give you the end of the movie so that you know as we walk through the story where it ends. Like, sorry, you can read it. I mean, it's there. But um, when all has been heard, Solomon was arguably, well, God even said, the wisest king to ever live in terms of knowledge and wisdom. We'll look at that in a second. And the idea of when all has been heard is the idea that it's the same thing we hear over and over and over. And what do we do? We think more knowledge will fix things. We get smarter and then we just find better ways to kill each other, Right? I mean, literally, that's what we end up doing is not always, but typically that's kind of how it goes. And the word Ecclesiastes is actually the word Ecclesia, the Greek word. It's not the Hebrew word that was used for the book, but it is a Greek translation. And it means the assembly, the, the, the assembling of together, the call to assembly. And so really this book is about the guy, which we'll see in a minute, who assembles this information together and calls people to listen and says, hey, look, you need to hear this. You need to understand this. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. And the Hebrew word is koleth, which means teacher or preacher or gathering guy, the guy scribe that gathers the things, the collector. And that word is spoken right at the beginning of the book. And so as we read this book and as we get into this series, you're going to hear things that you've probably heard yourself say a thousand times. You're going to hear things that you hear people around you say a thousand times, over and over and over again. And the question is, what do we do with all that we keep hearing? Because we keep hearing the same stuff, the same problems, the same fixes, over and over again, and we keep trying them, and they don't work, and then we blow it all up and try something else, thinking that it's new, and it's really just a rehash of the same old, same old. And we see this over and over again. Here's the spoiler alert for you. The passage of Scripture that sums up the entire book is Solomon writes the book, and at the end, he says, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter of life and its meaning and its existence, that's what the book's about, is to fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. In other words, Solomon, the wisest guy, probably the richest king to ever live, who brought the greatest peace for God's people to ever exist, comes to the end of his life because he writes this third book at the end of his life and he realizes that the conclusion of everything he's chased and all the wealth he's built and all the relationships he has and everything, the conclusion of the matter is Regardless of any of that, 
It's about just having a fear of God and obeying his commands. And not fear as in, I'm afraid God's going to get me, so I have to like be careful to do everything right to earn God's favor. It's not what Solomon's talking about. He's talking about a reverential awe. This, this fear of like, I don't want to disappoint this God who has done so much for me, who loves me, who cares for me, who, who keeps his covenants and has done all that he said he would do. I, I'm so, I just don't want to disappoint him. And so I want to listen to him and I want to obey him because I understand that's what humanity needs to hear. That's what humanity has to be about. And so this Solomon comes to the end of this. One of the things about the book of Ecclesiastes, when he uses the word God there, the word God is used a few times in the book, almost in every chapter, but it's not the memorial name of God that he uses. He doesn't use Yahweh. He uses Elohim. That's actually purposeful because Solomon is finding himself at the end of his life, which we'll see in a little bit, is finding himself at the end of his life wondering, what did I live for? What was the point? What was the point of all this wisdom and knowledge I have? What's it matter? And so, so Solomon throughout the book doesn't even use God's personal name because he doesn't feel personally connected to God. So he uses Elohim, which is kind of the creator God who's out there somewhere, not Yahweh, which is the name God gave to his people to call him personally. So Solomon, even in his writing, is wrestling and saying, I don't even know if I can use the personal name of God because of the wreck of my life I've made. I don't even know if I can speak to him that way. And he is wrestling with this. But when he comes to the end of the book, he realizes I understand, I just wish I would have done differently before. Solomon compiled it, he wrote it. Most scholars argue it wasn't Solomon. It's ridiculous when you look at the facts. Some people say and argue today in modern scholars that Solomon wasn't even real, that he didn't even exist. We haven't found enough evidence about Solomon that, that he could be real. And yet, scholars also said that about the city of Jericho, and then they found the city of Jericho, and it was exactly how the Bible described it. They said that about King Hezekiah. They said King Hezekiah never existed. Then in 2015, they found a seal when they were digging, and it was a royal seal used by the king to seal documents, and it was all of Hezekiah's information on the seal in Jerusalem. You see, God's continually trying to prove himself, and we're continually trying to say, just keep your distance. I'll have my life the way I want to have it. Thank you very much. And Solomon finds himself at the end of his life in a mess. Today's message starts out this. Everything is futile. This is what Solomon says in the first chapter in the opening of the book. And he repeats this. Your version might say everything is meaningless. Everything is pointless. Vanity of vanity. Your, book, your version might say it's all vanity. It's just pointless. That's what it means. Everything is futile and meaningless. Okay, this is the wisest king to ever live with the greatest wealth ever who has the greatest peace that God's people have ever seen in the world throughout history. And he comes to the end of his life after writing three books. He writes Song of Solomon. That's the first book he writes. Song of Solomon is a book all about passion and sex. And marriage. That's what the book's about. Young 
Jewish boys were encouraged not to read Song of Solomon until they became of age. <laughs> because it's that racy. Okay? I mean, it is like, whoo, when you read that book. He makes descriptions of the woman he loves, and you're like, oh, I don't know if I can read that. It is brutally honest because Solomon lived with great passion in the beginning of his life as a young man. Then later Solomon writes Proverbs. Why? Because you figure out as a young man, passion doesn't work real well. It gets you in a lot of trouble, so you need wisdom, and the people need wisdom. I can't run a kingdom on passion, so God, I need to write down wisdom, and I need wisdom. So the, Solomon has kind of his 30s and 40s, decides I need to gather all the wisdom I can so that I can make things right and do right things. Now Solomon is in his late 50s, maybe even early 60s. He's writing Ecclesiastes, and he says, all of that was meaningless. The women, the woman I thought would bring me meaning didn't. Because you know what? Solomon probably wrote Song of Solomon about his first wife. Then that wasn't good enough, so he got 700 more, 699 more wives and 300 concubines. Because the passion couldn't stay up high enough. So I had to bring some more wives and concubines in to try to keep the passion going. And so Solomon comes to the end, this wise, incredible king, wealth, peace, you name it. He had everything anyone could want. And he says it's vanities of vanities. That's what he writes in the first part of his book. So let's dive in. He says, well, let me pause. Here's what happened with Solomon, how he became king. You need to know this before we go in. In 2 Chronicles 1.10, Solomon becomes king after his father David. Now, give Solomon a little bit of kind of some mercy. Here's why. If your dad was King, Solomon, or king David and you had to take over for him, that'd be kind of hard. You know what I'm saying? Like David the Goliath killer, David the great king that unified Israel, like... And not only is it hard that way, but you are actually the son of the affair and the murder that David committed to get your mom. And you've been entrusted with the kingdom, not the other sons, because all the other sons did horrible, awful things, raping their own daughter, trying to kill their father and overthrowing the kingdom. You think your family's messed up? Oh, David's family, you can't even touch how messed up his family was. David was a broken man. We love to talk about David and Goliath, but David was a broken man. David saved up all this wealth and gave Solomon the expectation that he was supposed to build a temple for God that arguably God never said to build. Look it up. God lets us do things, right? And blesses things we do, even though it may not be what he exactly said to do. Nowhere in scripture did God said, you build a temple. God told David, I will raise up a descendant from you and he will build my temple. He wasn't talking about Solomon. He was talking about Jesus building the temple in heaven and building the temple of the human heart. We know that because the New Testament says it. Now, did God use the temple? Yeah, but Solomon had all that pressure to have all this wealth, and you're supposed to be the guy. Solomon is under enormous pressure taking over in the midst of this mess. And everybody's looking to him to say, you're going to be a better king than your dad was, right? 
Because that's what we all think. We're going to be better than our parents, better than our, we're going to make the world a better place. And so we try. We pursue everything to make the world a better place, and then we find out it still stinks. It's not any better. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon. So give him a little bit of mercy. Because he asks at the beginning of his reign, he says, Lord, I realize I'm clueless. I realize I've got a mess on my hands. And he says, now grant me wisdom and knowledge so I may lead these people. For who can judge this great people of yours? At the beginning of Solomon's life, he realizes, I don't have a clue how this works. Yeah, my dad's kind of done some things, but like, I, I, I don't feel like I'm enough. I, don't, I need help. He cries out to God for wisdom. Look at the next passage in 1 Kings 3.12. God tells him, and he also repeats this in Chronicles. He says, I therefore will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. That's true for all of us. There's never going to be another you. You have a unique fingerprint, a unique eye signature, a unique DNA. Like all of us are unique. But in this specific thing, God is saying, look, people are going to know about you. And it's going to be different. And the wisdom that you have is going to be passed down from generations. Which is what we have in the book of Proverbs. And so God actually grants Solomon supernatural wisdom. And you know what? Even though Solomon we'll see in a second, turns from God and doesn't use the wisdom properly, God never takes it away. See, we always play this game with God that we think, well, if I'm doing something wrong, then God will take it away and that'll tell me to to stop doing it. So I'll just keep doing what I'm doing until God stops me. Sometimes God's like, just, that's my blessing and you can just keep doing stupid and then one day you'll figure out you just keep doing stupid. He doesn't always just take it away. I mean, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit indwells us and comes into our life. When you sin, it's not like God plays hide and seek with the Holy Spirit. It goes and hides and comes back. That's not the way it works. God has given this blessing to Solomon. Now he has to figure out how to use it. That's the messiness of free will in our culture. And it's messy. So here's what happens to Solomon. You read the first part of Kings and Solomon is desperate for wisdom. You read to the end of the book of 1 Kings and it says, but King Solomon loved many foreign women. The number one way to destroy a man in our culture and in every culture that's ever existed throughout human history is women. God said, I'm going to have one wife one bride, the church, and I'm going to give my life for her. And men, let's just be honest, we constantly think there's a better option. And Solomon kept getting a new wife, and there's got to be a better option. And marrying wives, because literally he was so popular, he was so powerful, he was so wealthy that foreign kings would bring their wives Even though their daughters were getting married as the 126th wife, it didn't matter because it's better to be married to this king and be the 126th wife than to be married to the idiots back in my country. And Solomon said, well, God's not punishing me. Everything's peaceful. Things are going well. I must be doing something right because guess what? Nothing speaks to our hearts better than pragmatism. Pragmatism. 
We love pragmatism. If it works, it must be right. For now. For now it's right. For now it feels good. But at some point there's a price to be paid if it's the wrong thing. And Solomon, look what it says. He says, he came from the nations who the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Why? Because God's a racist? No. <laughs> Listen, any nation, any nation could surrender, leave their gods, and become and submit to the God of Yahweh. Have you ever heard of Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite. She was one of the women you weren't supposed to intermarry with. And Boaz, a righteous man, married Ruth righteously. Why? Because Ruth was adopted into the family of God through Naomi because Ruth said, I'm giving up my gods, I'm giving up my ways, and your God will be my God, and you will be my mother, and I will serve you. And because Ruth did that, she left her gods, and she became a child of God. That's what all of us do when we come to Jesus. We give up our family, we give up our heritage, we give it up and we say, I have a new family line now. I now commit myself to the people and person of God. And so no, God's not a racist. He just says, you're intermarrying with these nations without calling them to submit to me. You're making deals with them. You're making peace treaties to try to keep the peace instead of calling them out and saying that's wrong and you're not going to do it. And that's what Solomon did. To keep the peace, why? Solomon's dad was known as a bloodthirsty king. He killed a man, an innocent man, because of his bloodthirst. God even told David, you can't be the one that brings the one that will bring the temple. You can't build the temple. You can't do it because you have blood on your hands. Solomon would have heard all of that and thought, well, then I need to keep from any bloodshed. I need to keep from messing anything up or making anybody mad. So I just got to keep the peace at all costs. And it says here, if you intermarry and do this, surely they will. God doesn't say they might. It could happen if you're not smart enough, if you're not wise enough, if you're not rich enough, if you don't know how to manage this. God says, no, no. If you do this and you chase this, I promise you, you will turn from God. And that's exactly where Solomon finds himself when he writes Ecclesiastes. He's turned away from God and he is absolutely miserable. And it says, Solomon clung to these in love. The word these there doesn't just mean the women. It means the gods of the women as well. He clung to the idea that I can manage it all. I can make everybody happy. I can be the great king who brings peace and no war. And I can make everyone and all of it work together. And we keep electing politician after politician who promises the same garbage. Because we think that's going to work. Now, do I want war? Do I want a king that's like, I'm going to go kill everybody? No. Bad. <laughs> but you got to be willing to say, no, I turn away from that. I'm going to do the right thing, whatever the cost is. And Solomon wouldn't deal with it. And he allowed his lust and his passion that he had in Song of Solomon. He allowed the wisdom that he had to be used for evil gain. And in the end... Here's what he writes, beginning in Ecclesiastes, as an old man. The words of the teacher, son of David, 
king in Jerusalem. Obviously, this is talking about Solomon. Absolute futility, meaninglessness, vanity, says the teacher. Absolute futility, everything is futile. What does a man gain for all, of efforts, all his efforts that he labors under the sun? A key word you'll see in Ecclesiastes, underline it in your Bible, write it down, is the word under the sun. Solomon is not talking about heaven. He is talking about the things we see on earth. Solomon is so depressed and so messed up at this point that he can't even think about heavenly things. He's just focused on the stuff around him. And so everything he writes is a theology of under the sun. So when you read this book, Solomon's saying, this is what earth looks like. This is what happens on earth. This is what happens on earth. Solomon isn't talking or pointing to the supernatural. He's only observing the natural. Can I tell you, we've had some great scientists who have done this. Sigmund Freud, a genius at understanding the natural human behavior and how it is wicked and destroys and is sexual. He had no hope offered. His kids hated him. He was a horrible father. He had no hope. He just was able to see what Solomon saw. Most of our greatest scientists and social scientists figure out this stuff about the world. They just have no answers because it takes a supernatural God to change something that naturally is going to occur if something outside of the natural doesn't change it. And Solomon is wrestling with, is that even possible? Because all he's pursued is the natural his children, his family, his life, his wealth, his name, his legacy. He has not been about God. And so he comes and he says, what does man get for all the efforts and labors he does under the sun? The word futile there, when he says futile, 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 like almost three times, it's the same kind of way that the Hebrews, when they wanted to really emphasize something like this, the holy of holies, in comparison to the Holy of Holies, you have the futiles of the futiles. Like, like the ultimate futility. Can I just tell you that last sentence, verse 3? You know what we call that in our culture? The American dream. You're going to labor, you're going to work hard, and all your dreams are going to come true. And generation after generation does it, and generation after generation finds out, not really. Now, do I love my country? Do I believe that most of the principles that we govern ourselves by come from Scripture? Yeah, look it up. I've said this multiple times. The reason we have three branches of government is because God, in the book of Isaiah, said, God is our king, God is our lawgiver, God is our judge. And the founding fathers said, no one person except God can hold all that power. It needs to be separate to have a mutual accountability. That's in the book of Isaiah. Like our, our, we realized at one point in our past that we have to be a nation under God. Interesting, they never mentioned Jesus in our founding documents because that's just a little too radical. We want to keep God as the creator, Elohim God at a distance. We don't want that Yahweh saves Jesus, Yeshua God in our constitution and Bible. These are just truths. Now, do I love the country I live in? Does God call me to be under authority? Absolutely. Just like Solomon loved his people. He was called to be the king of his people. He, all of this, but he realizes in the end, he's like, it's all futile. Listen, this is the way I came to know Jesus. At age 18, I am sitting in my dorm room in October of my freshman year. And I am thinking about the American dream and my best friend who committed suicide a year before. 
And I'm thinking about the misery of life and the American dream and I'm going in debt for college. I'm like, what is the point of all this? And I'm sitting in my dorm room asking, so let me get this straight. I just get a job or get an education, then I get a job, then I get another job, and then I get some more education, then I get a wife and then a house and then a bigger house and some kids and and maybe I get another wife and another house and some more kids and then in the end I die and everybody splits up my stuff and within two generations I'm forgotten. That is the reality of life. You can try to fight it. You can plug your ears and say, I'm not listening. I don't want to hear that. That's too depressing. Doesn't matter. It's the reality of life. And I found myself sitting in the dorm room saying, this is a nightmare. There's got to be more to life than this hamster wheel. And that's when I realized and I cried out to God. I said, God, if you exist, just like Solomon, God, if you exist, help me. And God sent me Dave. And Dave came and Dave shared the wisdom of God with me in the person of Jesus Christ. And said, there is someone who's outside of the system who can change you and change things and give you a hope beyond this world that you can trust in and believe in and give your life to. And in the lobby of my dorm that day, I surrendered my life to Jesus and I have never been the same since. Has it been easy? Nope, because I still live in this world. (laughs) I still live in the futile world. Has it been worth it? Every day I wake up, I say, God, thank you that your mercies are new today and that I have a hope and a home in heaven. Here's what Jesus said about Solomon's statement here. When Jesus' disciples and the people around me, him, were thinking of the futility of under the sun, Jesus said, do not. Now, if God told you not to do something, you would tune in, right? Here's what Jesus says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Do not. Don't do it. He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Solomon revealed through his decisions where his treasure was. God told his people, never have horses and chariots because I'll protect you and you will be my army. And Solomon had more horses and chariots than anybody that ever existed, most likely. He disobeyed God. God said to David, they weren't supposed to save up a bunch of money. They were supposed to use those funds to make sure the people of God were cared for. They weren't supposed to overtax and overprice. They were supposed to care for the people. And Solomon built a kingdom and did everything that that God told him not to do. Why? Because Solomon was so afraid that things were going to be destroyed. He was trying to keep the peace and keep the kingdom together. I don't want rust. I got to protect the rust. I got to build with gold so it doesn't rust. I got to. That was what he did. And in the end, Solomon's treasure gets exposed. And at the end of his life, he realizes I've lived for all the wrong things. He looks at his life, he's like, it's all futile. What am I doing? Jesus said, you're going to come to that someday, and you have to realize that there's a God that says that you can actually store up treasures in heaven you don't have to be so worried about here. And that the treasures that you have here can be sent on and be entrusted to heaven if you use them for his glory and his majesty and the building of his kingdom instead of your own. Jesus said it right there. He goes on and he says this. 
A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You know, it's interesting because the idea that the earth remains forever is something that science says is not true. Someday the earth is going to be destroyed. The Bible actually says the earth will actually endure forever. The sun's actually going to disappear, but the earth will keep going. We just studied Revelation last fall, and the Bible says that the sun's going to disappear, but somehow God will supernaturally create a new world in which he is the power source and he is the light of the world. Read the book. Go back and listen to the sermons. It's right there in the end of Revelation. So Solomon is declaring something that science would say, that's ridiculous. No, actually, God says somehow he's going to do that supernaturally. The sun rises, the sun sets, panting. It returns to its place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning and turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea's never full. The streams are flowing to the place, and they flow there again. Solomon's like looking at the world. He's like, and it's all just the same old, same old. Sun goes up, sun comes down. We get rain, it all floods, and it flows away. Then we got drought. And it's just the same cycles over and over and over. Generation comes and they all die off and a new generation comes. This is the same thing that happens all the time. And every generation thinks we're going to survive longer. We're going to make the difference. We, our empire will never fall and every empire falls. And we look back and then we go, oh look, they built some great, I mean we're still using Roman roads in Europe in some places. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, Rome's gone. Look at what Jesus said. Jesus tells them, oh, sorry, my bad, going back. Jesus said to them, do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, that's what Solomon said, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Welcome to weather forecasting. How many times the weather forecast like, it's coming, here's what's going to happen. It's like, that, that was it? And then another time, it's like out of nowhere, it nails us and no one's prepared. Right? Solomon realized that thousands of years ago. Jesus said, this is going to happen all over the place. He's like, but here's the deal. Don't, why are you so amazed that I keep telling you there's a supernatural rebirth? That's what being born again means. He's talking to Nicodemus and not Nicodemus looks at him because Jesus says, you must be born of the water and born of the spirit. And Nicodemus is like, okay, you're born of water as in the water breaks and the baby comes. So I guess I got to get back in my mom and be born again into the spirit. Literally, read the passage. Nicodemus is like, how do I get back in my mom? No, Jesus is like, no, don't even have that thought. He's like, this is about a supernatural spiritual rebirth. It's what Ruth did. Ruth said, no longer these gods, but this God. Supernaturally, I'm going to surrender my will and my life to allow his supernatural power to change me. It's what Solomon wasn't willing to do. It's what he struggled to do. And Jesus says, everyone born of the Spirit gets that you can't control things. You have to allow God to do his work. You have to understand the fear of him, and to walk by the Spirit. There's another place in Scripture that says, if we walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That we live, we are so fleshly, we want to feed all of our thoughts and plans and goals, and we want to feed ourselves. Jesus is like, why don't you just 
Wait for the Spirit. Let it move and just do the simple cycles until the Spirit moves. And you know what? The Spirit may not move in your generation. It may not move for you in a powerful way. Big whoop de doo da Doesn't change who God is. We can still trust Him. We can still walk with Him. It's exactly what Jesus is explaining. Ecclesiastes goes on and he says, all things are wearisome. They are, aren't they? I mean, right now, most of you are in some kind of New Year's resolution, aren't you? Most of you in this room. You got something in your head that's like, oh, I'm going to do this. Has it it gotten weary yet? You weary of it yet? You will be about mid-February, if not now. 80 to 90% of people by mid-February quit on their New Year's resolutions. Because they get weary. Oh, that's too hard. I'll just go back to eating ice cream. I like ice cream. I'm not that fat. It's what we do. Solomon's no different. And he says, everything's wearisome. Man is unable to speak. Someone comes to you and confronts you. I thought you were going to not do that. Uh, uh, well, I, I, I changed my mind. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to say, we just leave me alone. Back off. I got this under control. God's like, no, I want to talk to you about this. And then he says, the eye is not satisfied by seeing and the ear or the ear filled with hearing. You think that the next thing you see is going to bring you satisfaction. The next thing you hear is going to bring you satisfaction, but it's not. You think, oh, if I could just only see the Grand Canyon. Then you see the Grand Canyon, you're like, oh, I can only see more of the Grand Canyon. (laughs) Oh, if I can only see, like, the Devil's Canyon. Oh, if I can only, like, all this, it's not enough. We know that intuitively. And so Solomon says, the eye's never satisfied. We never sit back and go, I don't need anything. I'm so content. It's just, everything's fine. That's, That's rare. And normally when we do it, it's because we're actually ignoring things we're supposed to be doing. So we look at God in some kind of pseudo-spiritual way and be like, I'm just being content right now. While the house is a disaster and the kids are killing one another and you do all the work. That is not righteous. Then he goes on and he says, the ear is filled with hearing. We hear all these messages, all these things that tell us what we want, what we need, who we should be, who we shouldn't be. Solomon's like, I'm 60 and I'm worn out. And I'm, I've been telling people this same thing. I've been filling people's eyes with big worship services. I've been filling people's eyes with all the wealth and everything. I've been telling people all the wisdom, and I'm exhausted. Because what's the point? Here's what Jesus said to answer Solomon. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's where we stopped just a moment ago. And he says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. What you looking at? What do you keep looking to and looking for and trying to find satisfaction in? Stop it. Look to Christ. Look to him. That's what Jesus says. And then he goes on and he says, but if your eye is bad, it'll be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? If you say you know Jesus and you keep chasing the dark, what is going on in your heart? And by the way, God doesn't want you to live there and stay there. He wants to bring light to the dark places. 
He says, no one can be a slave of two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. That's what Solomon is wrestling with in Ecclesiastes. He's lived his life for himself, his kingdom, all slapping God's name on it the whole time when God has said, you don't obey me and I'm going to strip the kingdom from you, which happens. He says... You cannot be slaves of both God and mammon. Your version probably says money. That's not a best translation. Mammon actually, the word used there means like material wealth or anything that promises wealth or satisfaction. That's what that word actually means. Anything that's going to be to your earthly material gain. He says, you cannot be slaves of both God and that thing that you think is going to bring you satisfaction and hope and fill all the voids in your life. You can't chase both because what's going to happen is you're going to choose one over the other every time and then you've got to deal with the consequences of that choice every time. And God says, I want you to choose to be a slave of me, a servant of me. Because the slavery that the world offers will destroy you. The slavery I offer as a good master is I actually offer you not just slavery, to be born again as my son or daughter. And as a son or daughter of a king, a good son or daughter of a king says, my dad's the king, I want nothing to do with that. I just want to serve him and tell people how great my dad is. That's the proper response, especially to a king that's never going to die and give you the throne because he lives forever. So there's no competition. I just want to serve him and tell him how great he is. Goes on and says this in Ecclesiastes. Solomon writes, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can anyone say about anything? Look, this is new. It's already existed in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of those who come before and, there, and those who will come after. There will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. This is true. I will ask you again. Tell me the name of your great, great grandfather and grandmother. Go. How many of you know that? Raise your hand if you know the name of your great-great-grandmother and grandfather. One, two. One, two. Solomon knows your heart. You're going to forget. You'll be forgotten by your own family. Tell me the name of somebody instead really important. Tell me the name of the specific name, not the name he inherited, the specific true name of the largest Chinese kingdom that ever exists that probably would have been the largest empire ever in the history of the world. Go. Maybe. I don't know the answer, even though I studied Asian studies. I forget. But you don't know. I don't know either. And was that really their name? I don't... Maybe. Like... Solomon is just stating what's true. And instead of us dealing with the reality of what Solomon's writing, we do what Solomon did. We bury our heads, look around us, listen to what we want to and say, I'm not listening. I don't want to see. I'm just going to, I'm going to focus on what's right in front of me and I'm going to listen to what I want to listen to. 
So we keep doing the same stupid over and over again because we're not inviting a supernatural change to help us. So it's the same patterns. And God's like, Solomon writes, he's like, look, nothing's new. You think, oh, well, but look at all we've created, these computers and these iPhones. What are they made out of? Old stuff. Silicone, sand, copper, gold, silver. Like, it's not new. It's just been repackaged and melted down. It's, it's not new. We didn't, like, create new elements out of nothing. We just discovered elements. We're like, ooh, we'll do this with it. And then we call it new. And God's like, no, I made that. Like, I always laugh at those people that are like, you know, argue, especially atheists who, who would say that God doesn't exist and, you know, that nature has always gone on and gone on. And I'm like, okay, well, then who created the first atom? Like, not the man, but like the atom, the particle. Like, something, you can't take something from nothing. So, something started it all. S something. Otherwise, whatever was the fir first element should be your God. Because that's the thing that will always exist. So helium or whatever, that's the, f carbon is the, is the God that we worship. He goes on, this is how Jesus said, this is the hope we have. When Solomon's writing all of this and he comes down and he says, there's no remembrance, this can be really depressing. If you're not depressed by now, then you're not reading the right book. Because the point of this book is to bring you to a place to be like, so the richest, wisest man in the greatest kingdom with the most peace feels like this on a regular basis and writes it down? Yep. Jesus, God says this, for I will be merciful to the wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is old and what is old and aging is about to disappear. I'm old and aging and balding and all kinds of other stuff. And I recognize that I probably have less time on the earth than I've already had. I'm going to disappear. I have to live with the reality of that. I can try to plastic surgery and get some hair plugs and, you know, stretch my skin out. And y'all like, yeah, that doesn't look right. Like you can do all that stuff. And everybody around you looks and goes, no, no, just, just age, please, just Get old. It'll look much better, right? Just stop trying. And he says, look at this. I will forgive. You see, there is a God who brings us to this point. Every one of you, including myself, will come to this point where we come to this emptiness and we have to make a decision. Do I believe that there is a God who is merciful, who will forgive, who can supernaturally change things and has a supernatural plan outside of this world that I can live for? And if I don't, then you're going to feel like Solomon every day. And it's going to be misery. And you can try every other God that's not real and every other thing and every relationship and everything you want, I'm telling you, you will stay miserable. And even if you're not miserable and you find enough happiness and ignore all of it, there's going to come a day when you have to stand before God in judgment. And if you haven't come to know Jesus Christ, there's no forgiveness for you and for eternity, you will be miserable. 
And you know what? You want a God like that. You want a God that's just and just doesn't let things slide. You know, I'm reading a book right now that was written in the late 1500s about the church. Late 1500s. I'm reading this book and everything in the book is like, I'm reading it going, yeah, that had just yesterday. Like I'm reading the book and every problem the church had, I'm reading, I'm like, yeah, that's the same, we haven't fixed it. Like I'm, I'm reading these problems, I'm like, oh, there it is again. Like it, it hasn't changed. Yet God says, you ready for this? See, the issue isn't that there's new issues the issue is we just don't like the conclusions that God has already given us to the issues. And so instead of embracing the conclusions that God has given us, we pride ourselves and say, how dare you, God? Or we say, thank you, God, very much. But I'm going to go hard and strive after some different answers because I don't like your answers and I don't like your conclusions. You know who the first person to do that was? Satan. Satan was the first person to say, God, ah, that's great, but I don't like your conclusions and I don't like your answers, so I'm going to try to be my own God. I'll make my own way. Thank you very much. And God says, do you not trust me? Do you not believe I'll be merciful and I'll forgive you? Do you not believe that I want to do new things in your life and change your life? Maybe not your circumstances because you live in a world where sometimes the circumstances don't change, but I can tell you your heavenly circumstances will be guaranteed. Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new. Do we believe it? He goes on, he says, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Solomon had been king about 40 years. Solomon's reign was about 40 years long. Think about that for a minute. Most of you here aren't even 40 years old. That means your whole life you only knew one president, Solomon. One guy, Solomon. And he says, I've applied my mind to seek and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven, under the sun. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. Welcome to college. Welcome to grad school. Welcome to the miserable task to keep you occupied. And you think, well, that's why I just don't want to think, and that's why I'm not going to study. No. It doesn't have to be a miserable task if you're doing it for the glory of God to understand the person of God. But if that's not your goal like it wasn't for Solomon, it was trying to keep everything and figure everything out and make everybody like you and make, keep the peace, if that's what you're doing to have the life you want, then I promise you, you're gonna be like Solomon and say this is a miserable task. And you're gonna wanna leave, you're gonna wanna cut out, I'm just done. Okay, why instead of making it a miserable task, why don't you start going to work and making it a glorious task to go to work every day? Because God said it's glorious to work six days and rest one. He designed you for work. He designed you for these things. So, so find joy in it. Don't just be miserable all the time. He goes on, he says, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and I've found everything to be futile. He Repeats it again, a pursuit of the wind. Have you ever tried to catch the wind? Go outside today, get yourself a cup. Maybe you got a pizza X cup that came with your little deal you got with the breadsticks and the pizza. Take your pizza X cup, go like this and catch some wind and take it in your house and then open it up. And everyone will be like, you're nuts. You just, what are you doing? You can't catch wind. He says, look at this. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. No, it can't. Not without God. And Solomon, you remember, at this point is without God. 
He doesn't care what God says. He's just miserable and he's writing it down. This is what you do. This is what I do, right? Yeah, your little pity party. You go, and God's like, and then some Christian comes along and they're like, you don't need to, no, you need to be encouraged. God hasn't changed, just stop. And you're like, shut up. Just let me be miserable. You know, the New Testament repeats what Solomon said. Second Timothy, talking about people who refuse to submit to God, says this. They're always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Why? Because they refuse to surrender and submit to God. It's just that simple. They just won't. They'll submit to everything else to keep everything they want going, but they won't just humbly live and surrender and submit. And so Solomon says, nothing can be straightened out. This is never going to happen. Everything, nothing's going to be counted right. And God's in heaven going, hello, I can straighten things out. I can count right because I'm God. Would, would you like to repent? And Solomon's not ready for that yet. That doesn't come till the end of the book. Chapter 12 when he says, oh yeah, fear God and obey his commands. There's 11 chapters of this coming. Are you ready? Because the next 11 weeks, the next 10 weeks are going to be this which is exactly what you and I do on a daily basis. Having our little pity party, chasing the things that don't make a difference, thinking that we can fix things when we can't, trying to keep the peace, when God's just like, why don't you just surrender to me and my ways and the way I do things? Why do you keep trying to learn, but you're never willing to embrace the truth? Finally, Solomon wraps it up with this. I said to myself, ha! That's one of my favorite verses in this whole book. Because that's what I do all the time, right? I don't talk to God. I'm not like, hey, God, I don't call Greg or Brian or Jason or some of you men in the church and be like, hey, man, just, I'm calling you because I want you, I'm struggling. I want you to pray for me. No, I sit in my chair that we bought last year and I sit there and I pity party. And I think, self, what would you do? What'd be the wise thing? What do we want to do today? What about you, self? Like, I'm having a conversation with who? An idiot. Like when you talk to yourself, you're having a conversation with an idiot, which means you're going to have idiot decisions. Don't talk to yourself. Talk to someone else. Talk to God. Talk to anybody, but not you. Because you already have made all the choices stupid that you're going to make, which means if you talk to yourself, you've got no new ideas. So don't say to yourself, but see Solomon's right here. I said to myself, self. Look, I've amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I am awesome. I'm so smart. That's what we do, don't we? All those day all idiots. My whole family doesn't know. I'm the one sitting here in my throne blue chair, commanding myself, listen, I have wisdom. I put in the time and effort. I'm righteous. I've served well. No, you haven't. You're an idiot. And you sound like an idiot. Solomon sounds like a moron here because he's acting moronic. And then he goes, I've applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I've learned that this too is the pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. Yep. Now, does that mean we should remain stupid? No. Don't do it. That's not what we should do. It's just, 
When you're increasing knowledge for all the wrong reasons and you're using all the wisdom for your own pleasure and glory or you're ignoring all the knowledge and ignoring all the wisdom so you don't have to deal with anything, both of those are going to lead to you being miserable, futile. And you're not going to want to hear it. When all has been heard, you're like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And Solomon says, look, I've applied myself to all of this and what's the point? Well, the point is you haven't gotten to the place where you're broken yet, Solomon. That's in 11 chapters. You're still wrestling. And so it's 11 chapters of our conversations that we see. Now, as I wrap up, here's the hope. The wisest man to ever exist was not Solomon. It was Jesus. Because Jesus actually applied every single piece of Old Testament wisdom perfectly for the glory and obedience of God the Father. And you know what this wonderful world did to Jesus when he did everything perfect and right, exactly how God said to do it? We killed him. I don't want to hear you. Thank you very much. You can take that back to the heaven you came from. And yet, Isaiah says this about Jesus prophesying. It said, he is despised and rejected by men. See, Solomon had tried to be loved by men, keep the peace, liked, build the kingdom. Jesus was like, I'm building God's kingdom. I really don't care what men think. I want them to love my father. I want them to respect my father, and they won't do it. A man of sorrows, look at that. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Solomon avoided all sorrow and all grief. He lived for pleasure. He lived for his kingdom. And Jesus was like, I embrace all the sorrow and the grief of the world. I'm gonna put it on my back. The stripes on my back and beatings and on the cross for you. And then it says, and we hid as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Let me ask you, are you hiding from God like Solomon's hiding? Are you hiding from the truth of what we just read about? Are you hiding from Jesus because you understand that to go to him means you're going to have to deal with some grief and sorrow that you've caused in your life? and caused in others' lives, and you just, I don't want to deal with that, so I'm just going to chase some things to try to give me some numbness and some peace. Jesus says, I'll forgive you. I'll take your sorrow and your grief, and I'll teach you how to manage it. I'll, te- I'll walk with you through the sorrow and grief. Don't hide from me. Fear me. Obey me. Stop hiding. Bring all the mess. You're a mess, I promise. I'm a mess. Bring it all. And go before God and say, you were despised, so I know you won't despise me because you took the, dis- the despising of your father so that I wouldn't be despised by you if I'll just surrender to you. And it says we did not esteem him. Solomon would not esteem God. He kept esteeming himself. Don't esteem yourself. Don't make a deal with God and say, well, God, if I do this, then you'll esteem me. You'll give me what I want in these areas. No. Just go to God and say, I got nothing to offer. I don't know if you're going to do anything, but I know this. I am done with that world, and I want the one that's coming. And surrender. And you want to know why we don't do it? Because we're just like Solomon. We're just like Solomon, only without all the wisdom and wealth for most of us. 
See, we can't stand to be sad or depressed, and we'll do everything we can to not endure. That's what Solomon was dealing with from his father, David. Trying to keep the peace, not being that guy. Can I just tell you? Jesus says, you don't have to feel despised and rejected because I took that for you. You don't have to be a man of sorrows and grief all the time because I will take your sorrow and grief. See, when all has been heard, when all has been heard, God says, Ecclesiastes, gather. Listen. I will help you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you supernatural rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this word. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to read through this book and that you had Solomon write it down. A man that we could never measure up to on earthly standards, but still just as miserable as many of us are at times. And Lord, I'm thankful that when I get to these places of misery, that I have a hope that Solomon, it took him a while to get to. I thank you that that I have you, that you came and you lived a perfect life. You died on a cross and you came back to life to prove that you were God so that we could clearly understand the purpose of this life and the one to come. Lord, I thank you for the wisdom of Scripture. I thank you that you used broken people to write these words, to warn us, to help us, to encourage us. And so this morning, Lord, and online, if there's anyone who has never surrendered their life to you and they're caught in what Solomon's caught in, Lord, I pray if they're willing today that they would surrender. They wouldn't be like Solomon and Harden and just sit in misery. They'd finally just say, I'm done. And Lord, it doesn't mean everything's going to get better all of a sudden. There are still the consequences of all the things under the sun, but it means that there's going to be a purpose and a peace that they could never get any other way because they trust you. And if they do that, you promise that they will never be forgotten. They will be remembered forever in heaven and their name will be written down in the Lamb's book of life. And when the new earth comes and you come back and you reign, they will be with you and be with the ecclesia, the people of God forever. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, I pray that we would take this to heart. We'd get serious about using the wisdom and knowledge and things that you've had, not for our own glory and kingdom, but for yours. And we do it in a way that we just embrace the simple. We embrace the sun going up and sun coming down. That we're not always trying to do new, exciting, flashy things. That we're really willing to just find wisdom in serving and doing simple things that people have been doing for thousands of years to give you glory. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Pray all this in your name.